When I was nine years old, I wanted to be cool. I know this is hard for you all to believe. I wasn't always the super cool guy that you see before you this morning. I had to work at it. I was nine years old, and I knew I needed to be cool. I wanted to be cool. I desperately wanted to be cool, but I didn't know what cool was. Cool was just like this abstract thing. It was like this, this concept. It was just an unattainable ideal. I didn't know what cool wore. I didn't know what cool said. I didn't know what cool did. I didn't know how cool acted in certain situations. I mean, I'm nine years old. None of my friends are cool either. We're nine. We don't know anything about cool. And then in the fall of 1975, at 7 o'clock on a Tuesday night on Channel 8, there he was. Hey, the fawns. That's cool. I knew it as soon as I saw him. This is cool. I knew by the way he acted. I knew by the way other people acted around him. This is what cool wears. This is what cool says. This is what cool does. This is how cool always acts in all these different situations. This is cool. I knew it. Cool was no longer a concept. Cool was no longer some abstract thing out in the universe. This was cool. This was the model. This was a living, breathing, walking, talking, finger-snapping, motorcycle-riding, leather-jacketed model for cool. And I jumped into imitating this model with everything I had. I didn't have a leather jacket, but I had a blue jean jacket. And I wore it every day. And when I put it on, I'd pop the collar up because that's cool. 97 degrees outside, I'm wearing the jacket. I got the collar up because this is cool, right? And so... Um, that was me. Uh, when I would get a Coke out of the Coke machine at school, I'd pop my 35 cents in, and then I'd go like this. Boom. Coke comes out. Hey. We had these combs. Remember these combs in the 70s? They'd stick out of your pocket like halfway up your back. I'd grab this comb, and I'd walk up to a mirror or a door somewhere, and I'd go, hey. I was, hey. I was that way all the time. I wanted to do what Elvis did. Uh, Elvis, the Fonz did. <laughs> Just saw the Elvis movie last week, so I've kind of got that vibe working right now too. But there was all this, right? Remember this? Hey, that was the thing with him. And I was, I was trying to do that. I was trying to talk like the Fonz. Like I would, uh, when I'd go to the bathroom, I'd say, you want to meet me in my office? I called my sister Shortcake. My friend at church was named Mike Cunningham. I called his parents, Mr. and Mrs. C. And I told everybody to sit on it all the time. Hey. And it was this all the time. Hey. It did not make my mother's joy complete. <laughs> my mom did everything in her power to break me of this. Hey. You know how most people have a swear jar somewhere in their house? We had an A hey jar in my house. I went for like 17 months without an allowance. She tried everything. Paul is writing to this little church in Philippi. He's writing to real people, people called by God. And we know these people. We know their names. We know Epaphroditus and his family. 
We know you, Euodia and Sintiki. We know about Lydia and her household. We know about that little slave girl from the marketplace. We know about the jailer and his family. All these people are real people with real names in this real church. And this is a real letter Paul wrote. Now, I'm not sure we always think through that. We actually have a letter written by an apostle of Jesus Christ, a person who conversed with the Lord and who conversed all the time with the other apostles of Jesus Christ. We actually have a letter he wrote. That's, it's not jacked up. I mean, this is the letter. It's been preserved for us. I don't want us to ever lose that when we're reading the scriptures. And so Paul's writing to these Christians in Philippi, and he writes at the end of what we now call chapter one, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. Verse 30, you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, the word is aun, and I don't know why it's not in our NIV translation. But in the Greek, therefore is the first word in Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you're breathing, in other words, then make my joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This passage is telling us to live our lives in humble, sacrificial service. And that sounds good. I mean, that, that sounds right, right? Humility, sacrifice, and service. Who could argue with any of those concepts? Except a lot of the times they're just concepts. They're also commands. But so much of what's in Scripture, including the concepts and the commands, can seem like just abstract ideas, just Lofty, unattainable ideals. What does humility wear? What does sacrifice say? How does a servant act? What do humility, sacrifice, and service do in particular situations? We don't know. Crud, none of our friends know. We struggle with this. And we take biblical concepts and commands, and you know what we do with them, right? You know what we do with the words in the Bible. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Well, what's nothing? Define nothing. Consider others better than yourself. Okay, who are these others exactly? Is this everybody in the world or is it just mainly people we go to church with? Look to the interest of others. To what extent? How far am I supposed to go? Seven times? Seventy times seven? That's what we do. We take the words and we slice them up and we analyze them to death and we manipulate them to mean exactly what we want them to mean, so much so that they wind up not really meaning anything. What does humility, sacrifice, and service really mean? What do humility, sacrifice, and service look like? How does humility, sacrifice, and service act 
in particular situations. Well, Paul gives us the living, breathing, walking, talking model of humility, sacrifice, and service. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is humility, sacrifice, and service. Christ Jesus is what humility, sacrifice, and service look like. Jesus is what humility, sacrifice, and service talks like and thinks like. Jesus Christ is what humility, sacrifice, and service do in a particular situation. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says humility, sacrifice, and service is not a theory. It's not, it's not some abstraction. It's not an unattainable ideal. Humility, sacrifice, and service are real. And Jesus is the model. He's the one we imitate. You know, Scripture calls us as God's people to live and act like in a certain way to, uh, to be like God. And we don't have to try to figure that out, right? We don't have to just wonder about this or, or guess what it means. We don't have to speculate at all. Paul says it's Jesus. This is more than a motto. This is an invitation to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who, number one, humbled himself. Verse 8, Jesus humbled himself. He's equal to God in every way. Being in very nature, it says, God. Equal in power and glory. He is equal to God. But he made himself nothing. He's God. But he made himself a slave. Our model, the one we follow, gave up everything. Christ Jesus willingly traded heaven for earth. He traded glory for shame. He turned in his royal scepter for a servant's towel. He gave up life for death, even death on a cross. He voluntarily went from the absolute highest of positions and power in the universe to the absolute lowest and worst. This is the attitude we imitate. Some people call it downward mobility. Your attitude should be the same as this. Now, personally, I think Paul is talking about Jesus on that last night with his apostles around the table the day before he died. Paul wasn't there that night, but he had heard the stories. Peter talked about this all the time. In John 13, Jesus interrupts their meal. In the middle of the supper, it says, Jesus takes off his dinner clothes, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he adopts the posture and the role of the lowest kind of person they know. Someone who would wash someone else's feet. Jesus, the, the holy son of God, the, the eternal king, he fills a bowl with water and he gets down on his knees submissively, humbly, and he washes their feet. 
Peter's reaction tells us how shocking this was. No, he says, never. You're never going to wash my feet. And in verse 13, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're exactly right. That's exactly who I am. He says it. There's nobody higher than me. There's nobody more exalted than me. And then he made himself the least important person in the room. He's down on the floor, washing with his own hands. 120 stinky, smelly, dirty, dusty, filthy, disgusting toes. And all the stuff in between them. Even the toes of Judas. He's washing their feet. And then he says in verse 12, do you understand what I've done? Verse 15, I've set you an example. You should do as I have done. Jesus gives us this amazing, dramatic, drastic picture here. It's a concrete action they're never going to forget. There's no alliteration. There's no PowerPoint. There's no fancy graphics or catchy slogans. This is the pure and perfect and holy son of God. But like a Gentile slave, as if he were unclean and unworthy in every way, he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. Jesus makes himself the least important person in the whole room. And we don't just look at this incredible story of humility. We don't just marvel at this amazing humility. And we don't just praise God for Jesus' remarkable humility. I mean, we, we do all of that. We do look at it. We do marvel at it. And we do praise God for the humility of our Lord Jesus. But the Lord invites us to imitate it. He doesn't call us to, to study it and analyze it and consume it. He invites us to participate. He calls us to humble ourselves and wash each other's feet. To imitate him. It's an invitation to imitation. To be like him. How hard is that? It's hard, isn't it? Can you make yourself the least important person in this room, look around at everybody in this room. You in the front, turn around and look at the people in the back. And y'all all look at each other. Can you make yourself the least important person in this room? Can you live in such a way that your feelings are the least important? That your preferences, what you want to happen, are least important? Where what you want your preferences, your feelings, all of that, where it's, it's last? Can you do that with your family? Can you do that at work? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and who became a servant. Look at verse 7. Taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own benefit. Jesus saw his position and his power as a way to serve others, as a way to serve all. He became a servant or a slave. The Greek word here is actually slave. And so he is deprived of his most basic human rights. 
Jesus has no rights. He has no freedom. He has no choice. He doesn't have a voice. He gave all that up for the sake of others. In his own words, remember Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Our Lord never exercised his rights. Jesus never asserted his rights. And and listen, I really want you to hear this this morning. I want you to think about this and talk about it and pray about it. I think as Texans living in the United States of America in the time that we do on the eve of this country's Independence Day, I think we need to realize our Lord Jesus Christ never fought for or defended his rights. He never lobbied for his rights. He never complained about his rights. Christ Jesus, our King, gave up his rights. Gave all of them up. He denied his rights. And he invites us to do the same thing. He invites us to imitate that. To participate. He said it all the time. It's just that I'm not sure we're always reading it right. In Mark chapter 8, Another just foundational core passage for us. Jesus calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. You're going to follow me? You've got to deny yourself. Can you deny yourself? And I'm not talking about self-denial, okay? Self-denial is getting the salad at McDonald's instead of the two Big Macs, okay? Self-denial is drinking water instead of Dr. Pepper. It's, it's not going to the R-rated movie, okay? Self-denial is keeping something back from yourself for a good cause. And, and that, that is sacrificial, and that is denial, and that is a good thing. But you're still in control. You follow me? You're still the one making the call. Denying yourself means God the Father and his holy will to use you to serve others is the driving force behind every single thing you say, every single thought you have, and every single thing you do. It's not deny yourself blank, it's deny yourself, period. And if that means having to leave your job, you leave it. If that means having to sell a boat or a truck, you sell it. If that means moving when you'd rather stay or staying put when you'd rather get out of Dodge, it means you do it. Nothing stands in the way of following Jesus Christ. You have no desire for status or honor or money or personal achievement or any kind of recognition at all. It is none of self and all of thee. Thirdly, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who made himself a servant and who sacrificed his life on a cross. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus left everything. He considered the glory that he shared with the Father in heaven as nothing. He came here to suffer. He came here to be deserted by his family and friends, to be tortured, and to be executed like a criminal for us, for you and me. He did that, and he didn't have to. Jesus had the authority. Jesus had the power. Jesus has the armies of heaven at his disposal. He had 10,000 angels on speed dial. Jesus and his apostles could have marched to Rome that morning. 
They could have overthrown the government that afternoon and hung Caesar from the highest tree and been home in time for dinner. They could have done that. Jesus could have given each of his apostles their own country and they could have run the government the way it needed to be run. But he didn't do that. Instead, he sacrificed his life. He died. Ephesians 5 says, he gave himself up for us. And he summons us to do the same. He invites us to do the same thing. Again, going back to Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Here's what that doesn't mean. Your cross is not your arthritis, okay? It's not your family issue. It's not your nosy neighbor. It's not old brother so-and-so in your Bible class that's making you nuts, okay? Your cross to bear is not your patient endurance of the everyday struggles of just what it means to live life here on earth. Our cross to carry is the humiliation and the ridicule and the disgrace that comes when we deny ourselves and make ourselves servants to the world. Carrying a cross was the most despicable, reprehensible, shameful, and repulsive thing there was. It was humiliating. And Jesus says, take it. Can you die for others? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who sacrificed his life on a cross. And we say, well, we're not called to die. We don't have to die, not, not today, not in this country, not, not living in this age. We don't have to die, you know. If I, if I were living in another country or if we were living in another time, maybe a long time ago, then maybe, maybe I'd be forced to think about that, you know. Maybe I could die for someone. Maybe, but, but not today, not, not in this day and age. A lot of people say, Jesus died so I don't have to. That's not true. Jesus died to show us how to. Ephesians chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice to God. Hear me, church. Jesus never, never, not one time said, accept me. He said, follow me. He did not live on this earth to show us how to walk the streets of gold and heaven in the future. He came to this earth to show us how to walk the dirty and dusty paths of right now today. Jesus says, you leave everything behind to imitate me. Jesus left the glory he shared at the Father's right hand. And so that's why Jesus tells us, you leave your family if you need to. You leave your job if you need to. Leave your home. Leave your field if you need to. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Okay, Jesus, I'll do that. Where are we going? We're going to die. And we try to sugarcoat that, you know. We do. We, we try to take the edge off that. We, we try to present that in, in a different way. You know, he didn't mean that literally. No, nobody has to really die. And when we say that, Jesus says, get out of the way, Satan. He rebukes us. Get behind me. 
You follow me. Sacrifice. This is what it looks like. We die. We die to ourselves. We, we kill off selfish ambition. We, we put to death vain conceit. We, we crucify our own interests. We suffocate those parts of ourselves for the sake of others. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, whatever you, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I'm just kind of making this up as I go along? No, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Like Jesus on the night he was betrayed, we have to continually search for ways to make ourselves the least important person in the room. Sometimes that means giving up our pew. Sometimes that means giving up our preferences. Always it means giving up our position and our power. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Church, this is more than a motto. This is an invitation to the imitation of the one who gave up everything to save us. It's an invitation to a powerful and ongoing transformation of yourself, of your family, of this church, of this city, and the whole world. Now look at how Paul ties this attitude of humility, sacrifice, and service. Look how he ties it directly to his words just before this at the end of chapter 1. This, this struggle he's talking about to advance the gospel. This contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Verse 27, that word contending, that is soon athleo, athle. This is about athletes. That's the picture. These, this team of athletes working and pushing and, and striving together as one cohesive unit to achieve the same goal. None of the sports teams I root for exhibit any of this. But I'm trying to picture it, right? Paul says, therefore, since you have this common goal, since we're partners in this, since we're sharing the work, look at verse 30, since you're going through the same thing I am, since you and I have this single purpose, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If you want to contribute to the cause, if you want to participate in the salvation mission, this is how you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is all connected. See, not having this attitude, not sacrificing and serving others out of humility and love, that actually hinders the spread of the gospel. And look at how Paul ties this to joy. He says, make my joy complete. And we're reminded of Jesus in John 15 when he says, imitate me, do what I've done out of humility, sacrifice, and service so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. And we're reminded of Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And now Paul says, 
Make my joy complete. Well, where's the joy for crying out loud? Where's the joy in humility, sacrifice, and service? I want to be the Fonz. I don't want to be Ralph Malf or Potsy, right? I want to snap my fingers and have the girls swoon and the guys scramble out of my booth and the jukebox playing my favorite song. I want to be in charge. I want to be independent. I want to be in control. Where's the joy in humility, sacrifice, and service? Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. When Jesus let go, God lifted him up. When Jesus humbled himself and became a servant, God exalted him and made him Lord. That's why he says, if you imitate me in these ways, your joy will be complete. That's why Peter says, humble yourself that God may lift you up. That's why Paul says, make my joy complete. Now, this takes faith. This takes a deep trust in God through Jesus Christ who makes every one of his promises come true. Jesus says it, and we got to trust it, right? Jesus says, you lose your life, I'll save it. You give your life away, I'll give it right back to you. You make yourself last, you're going to be first. That's Jesus. Sacrifice and serve in humility, and I will give you eternal glory forever. Brothers and sisters, this is not cerebral, this is social, okay? These are not words and thoughts, these are actions, Concrete, practical, everyday actions. Jesus gave up everything to save you. And he says, you got to have that same attitude. Stand with me, church, would you please? I'd like to ask our elders and our ministers and your spouses, would y'all kind of spread out a little bit so we can see where you are and, and who you are? Would y'all give me a couple down here and, and a couple in the aisles here and there? Um, I, I want to I ask a question, okay? And if you need to have a conversation with one of us, would you please feel empowered to do that right now? We would... We would love to pray with you. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to encourage you and, and challenge you if that's what you need. We want to we be spiritual shepherds to you in this church family. But here's the question. Here's what I want you to think about. What have you not surrendered to Christ? What, what part of your life have you not given all the way to Jesus Christ? Is there something you're holding back? Is it a job? Is it a hobby? Is it a habit? Is it an improper relationship? What is it that you haven't given to the Lord? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Humility, sacrifice, service, and a trust that God's going to keep his promises to you. And so I would ask you this morning as we, as we sing this next song, if we can pray with you, if we can help you, if, if you've got something to confess and something you want to give to God, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit today, you want to give that to him, that part that you're holding back? We would love to pray with you and give that to the Lord today 
in the name of Jesus. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. Let's sing. Let's pray.